0: Hello world, I have today a very special podcast that I was blessed to record. Uh, It's rare that you get to meet one of your heroes, but even uh, more rare when one of your heroes gives you some time uh, to speak and tell their story and share it with you in an exclusive extended interview. And uh, I was blessed to have that opportunity in the last couple of weeks, Uh, Mr. Andrew Ramroop who is one of the premier tailors on Seville Row was willing to speak with me uh, about his story, his life experience. And we went way back to his roots in Trinidad. And he shared his entrepreneur story and the the work ethic and the goals and the skills that got him there. And I'm blessed to be able to share them with you. So uh, stay tuned for one of our more in-depth and longer interviews on the Sales Synergistics podcast where we're gonna explore some of the things that make entrepreneurs the special kind of people that they are. Hello world, and welcome to the Sales Synergistics Podcast, where we arm you with the knowledge, tools, skills, and experts to bring your sales, marketing, and operations teams together all through your sales process. Let's get into our podcast for the day and see how we can help you succeed. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I am honored to be here today with uh, one of the icons of the fashion industry and uh, inspirational story in the entrepreneur space as well. Uh, Mr. Andrew Ranroop is one of the premier tailors, owner of one of the finest tailoring houses in Seville Row in London, England. And his story today, hopefully, will be informative and inspiring for all of you. Uh, Welcome, Mr. Ramroop. Thank you for joining me today. How are you, sir?
1: It's my pleasure. I am very, very well. Excited to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Especially from my Caribbean hideaway.
0: (laughs) That's wonderful. I want to hear a lot more about that. And for the benefit of those who are not familiar with your story, uh, I've heard you tell it many times, and I, I think you tell it better than I ever could. Could you please share with us a little bit of your background and how you uh, came to where you are today in your Caribbean hideaway, uh, because it's been an inspirational story for me.
1: Well, it's, uh, I came from the foothills of the Northern Range of Mountains in Trinidad, a, a little village called uh, Mango Village in Tunapuna. Tunapuna is situated uh, where the University of the West Indies is. That's the closest claim to flame, fame that we have. Uh, I grew up in the hills, well, more in the forestry. Now it's, uh, it's, it's a lot more populated. But at that time, I'm talking about the 50s, late 50s, um, mid, to, mid to late 50s when I grew up on the hills. And um, I had, for some reason, I can't imagine how or when it happened, but my mother reminded me that I used to cut up her pillowcases and try to make clothes out of it. And then I used to cut up newspapers and, and try to make pants. And I suppose it was the origami of, of tailoring that I was interested in. I could not say exactly why I had this interest, but somehow that interest got into my subconscious. And when I was about nine years old, I cut up one of our pillowcases. We had one of those sewing machines that are, was operated by hand because in the hills we had no electricity. And so what I did is with a hand sewing machine, I sewed down the side of the pillowcase and made it like a large W Mm. and then sewed the side leg down. And that was my first pants that I made. Mother reminded me I was about nine years old. And I don't recall getting punished for doing it, but I do recall her telling me that that I washed it and I hung it up in the line to dry outside. I was so (laughs) proud of it. So it was like, you know, the early days of, of having an interest. And I went to school when I, you have here, you've got to pass your common interest exam at 11 to go into college. Mm. And I didn't want to go to college. Mm. So I tried really hard to fail my exam. <laughs> and I was successful in failing. Because now that I've failed, I thought I'm definitely not going to go to college. But what I didn't bargain for what I didn't think in the equation that my godfather was vice principal of one of the leading colleges. In fact, this last year they actually won all the competitions in, in academic and sports, mm. beating all the top colleges in Trinidad and Tobago. Mm. But I I could have still gone to college. So my godfather said to my parents, you know, even though he failed, he's still gonna to go to college. No, that wasn't part of my plan. <laughs> you know, I tried to fail and I, I was successful in failing, as I said, but you know, I really wanted to be a tailor, but not have any great ambitions of becoming a tailor, but learning to make pants and learning to make shirt. And I, I guess for some reason, why I wanted to make pants and shirts, is because coming from a very, very, very humble background, that we didn't have much clothes. And I thought, you know, if I could make my own clothes, that's a way of getting clothes. Mm. And so said I've got to go to college but I I worked on what I thought was the weakest link and it turned out not to be the weakest link it was my mother because I could approach my mother and say to her look I didn't want to go to college but I could not possibly say that to my father and least of all my godfather and so my uh, mother spoke to my my father and for whatever reason they allowed me to do what I wanted to do which was really odd and it's only about Uh, maybe 10 years ago, less than 10 years ago, or perhaps, yes, it was about 10 years ago, I asked my mother, I said, what it is that made you all decide to let me do what I wanted to do? And she told me that there was this girl next door whom I liked, I rather fancied. I was 12 years old, you know, (laughs) and I liked this girl next door. And I could identify with her because she was 11 years, she was a year older than me, she was about 13. And she also had failed her exam. And I said to that girl, that if they sent me to college, I would play a truant every day. And that girl told my mother what I said. And uh, then my mother asked me about it. And then the story goes that I, they allowed me to do what I wanted to do. Now, I, this girl changed my life. And I, if I digress a little bit, because I tried to find her I tried to find her all these years later. And I searched and searched. And two years ago, I was at, uh, um, two or three years ago, I was at the opening of the African American Museum in in, in DC. Mm -hmm. And I was really determined to find this person. And so I called up, I made a few calls and I spoke to my brother in Trinidad. And he said, well, this girl, she has a brother who runs a jewelry store in Tunapuna, the same, well, it was a village when I left here, but, um, but in, in the town, and uh, he'll get his number. He got the brother's number, I called up the brother, I spoke to him, told him who I was, you know, where I've been, what I've been doing, and how his sister had been instrumental in changing my life. And uh, I asked for his sister, whether he's in touch with his sister, and he told me that she left and went to Puerto Rico to live when she was about 17 years old. We, there, there were some similarities because she, I left when I was 17 and a half years old to go to the UK, and she was about 17 and a half years old when she went off to Puerto Rico. I'd never seen her from when she was 13 or, or when I was 12. And, um, and I found her. I called her when I was in D.C., and I, she didn't answer, but I got an answer phone, and I left a message with a little story and asked her to call me back. She didn't call back, but I was in D.C. for a couple of days, and then I was back to London. When I didn't hear from her, I called, back, called her back that very night. And I found her. We spoke, and we spoke for hours and hours and hours and hours. So I digress to tell you that story because this, the, you know, you talk about mentors, you talk about people who, who's had some impact on your life. This this person has been instrumental in changing my life and a pathway because they would have insist- insisted on me going to college. Mm. And it was not what I would have enjoyed. It's not where, where my passion was. It, I had no enthusiasm for higher education. It, it's it's interesting now that I'm a teacher, but I'm a teacher of the sartorial art right. as opposed to I'm a teacher of something that I really enjoy. And I've, it has been part of my, part of my being for, you know, I'm 67. It's part of my being for more than 50 years, more than, you know, I would say, for the best part of almost 60 years.
0: That's wonderful. And it's interesting how that small change of being allowed to pursue your passion has led to something so wonderful. And um, what was the first step after you were given that license? You talked about going to the UK. What, what sent you overseas from? I had, I had
1: learned, you know, for me, um, as I've often said, learning tailoring was like a child learning to play a musical instrument or even learning a new language or any other skill. Tailoring for me was simple. It was easy. I could easily assimilate information and act on it without without having had much opportunity or any practice. I would just see someone doing something in the in field of sewing and I would be able to do it without being able to practice it. You know, I I would instantly recognize what needs to be done, I I would be able to do it. And so uh, I left school when I was 13, going on 14, and I learned to make pants, and I learned to make pants in a very short time because school closed in July. In July, I started to learn to make pants, and before school opened in early September, I was making other school kids pants to go to school. Making their school uniform because in Trinidad, no one bought anything ready to wear. Mm. You had to have your uniforms made to go to school. And so, in that very, very short time, I was making pants. I went on and I I became a pants maker, and I was being paid in in Trinidad money uh, 50, 45 cents in Trinidad money, which is like about, uh, I think it's about a cent. Mm.
0: It's
1: around a cent uh, US. But I was, I was doing quite well. You know. It, it was a lot of money, because mm-hmm. my parents was paying $20, Trinidad dollars, a month for me to learn the trade. And mm-hmm. in four weeks, I learned. So I didn't have to pay any more. I then began to work for free, and then I began to get paid uh, 45 cents for a for, for pass. And so I began to save my money. My ambition grew. I wanted to learn to make jackets. Mm -hmm. And I asked this tailor, whom I was with, whether he would teach me to make jackets. And whenever I asked, he would say, I'm not ready yet, because I was earning money making pants. And so he gave me the opportunity to leave, because I said, you know, if I can't learn any further with you, then I'd like to leave. And uh, he allowed me to leave, which I thought was good terms. Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting uh, story, because he... He said I can leave. And so I left his employee and I went to learn to make jackets. And after one day of learning to make jackets, he got himself inebriated. I went to another tailor to learn to make jackets. He got himself integrated went up there. And as we say here, we he up that tailor for taking his, his apprentice away and so on. <laughs> so I only lasted one day because when I went into Tuesday morning this other tailor said to me, look, this is what happened last night. And I run a respectable business. So I can't have that happening. Mm-hmm. And so I had no choice. And, you know, I'm now 14 years old. Uh, you know, just over 14. Um, got to walk back up home, totally dejected, no opportunity. So I spoke to my mother, told her what happened. She called to the, the pants maker, his name was Daniel. She called Daniel and said, You know, will you take him back? And Daniel said, No. He said, No. And not only did he say, No, he said, I'll see to it that he does not get any further in the trade. So, all the tailors in Tunopunah, there were four tailors, three tailors mm-hmm. in Tunopunah. You went to them. I couldn't get an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, coming from the hills, I spent the next several months in the river, in the forest, climbing trees. I had a couple of young friends, you know, we would we would be all or everywhere in the forest and doing stuff that, you know, kids yeah. idle didn't do. But my father was very concerned. And my father worked as a cleaner mm-hmm. at the bank. Um, the first national bank in Trinidad, it was called the National Commercial Bank of Trinidad and Tobago. And he was constantly asking where for an apprenticeship somewhere in Port of Spain, where I can be away from Daniel and away from Daniel's influence. Mm-hmm. And he, by asking around, he asked one of the tellers in the bank and she said, well, her husband uses a tailor. And I got an interview with that tailor and that tailor had been to the UK in 1966, and he had done his patent drafting course and had come back to Trinidad to run his tailor business.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I got an apprenticeship with that gentleman. His name was Kisun Singh. Now Kisun Singh used to brighten up my eyes about the excitement of London, of Savile Row and so on, never thinking that I would ever get there. He would tell me all these stories about the captains of industry, prime ministers, presidents, Hollywood stars, that's where they go to have their suits made. And quietly, I was being influenced by this mysterious place. Hmm. I had never gone, I've never done geography at school. I've only done elementary school. So I didn't understand geography, how far away it was. I know he went to England, yes, but uh, where is this place? And so I aspired in my mind, I was just thinking, yeah, I'm gonna save all my money and I've going to get to England. And so I saved every cent that I earned. By, by that time, I, w- I had learned to make jackets very, very quickly. In about two months, I learned to make jackets. Mm. And so now I was making jackets. I was being paid $15 Trinidad uh, to make a jacket. And that is, that is exactly $2 in U.S. money. Mm. It's about $2.50 U.S. And I'm now earning. I'm now earning money. And I was saving every cent I earned. Because I wanted to go to Savile Row. I'd heard now of Savile Row. And so I sailed to Savile Row. I bought a boat ticket. uh, And I often say I sailed to Savile Row. I didn't go to Europe. I didn't go to to the UK. I didn't go to England. I I went to Savile Row. I bought a boat ticket and I had made myself two suits. I'm now 17 and a half years old. And I went to Savile Row looking for a job.
0: and what else did you have with you? You had your two suits, uh, I guess the, the basic necessities and-
1: My father uh, gifted me two sets of pajamas. I had a, a shirt. I had the shoes I was wearing and that was it. That was it. <laughs> uh, was it, I, in fact, I discovered a photograph uh, about a month ago. Uh, of me on the docks of Port of Spain with my little case in my hand
0: oh, and
1: my I, I was in the docks of Port of Spain waiting and waiting for this boat to arrive I waited for and I was on my own because by that time those people, this big fanfare of me leaving the village you can imagine, you know the yes. village of 200 people, almost everybody knew I was going away and um, So it's a a huge show that I was leaving. And when I got to the docks, you know, my family, my family was there, but I waited an hour, waited two hours, three hours, just about everyone left. And I was in the docks on my own. And uh, four hours went by, began to get dark. You know, I'm sweltering in my suit, it's now become dark. You can see the rusty, you know, the rafters and the dangling bulbs and the, and the docks, really, you know, kind of old and, and shall I say, primitive docks. And then suddenly after about five hours, it's now around 7 p.m. It's dark and a little boat arrives. A boat can take no more than about 20 people. Oh, my. And I'm thinking, hey, what's going on? Because there were seven other people waiting for the boat. And... Uh, and I'm on my own. Am I going to leave here on this little boat, uh, and none of my family are going to be here? You know, you know. I was totally lost, totally lost. And then the nick of time, my father and mother turned up, and I think a couple of my brothers. We we five. We five siblings. I've got four siblings. Mm-hmm. I've got uh, a sister and three brothers, and. Um, this guy who was um, steering this little boat said that he was going to be taking us out of Trinidad waters to get the bigger boat because the captain wouldn't pay the f- docking fee nah. just <laughs> just to get eight people, you know? And uh, so in the pitch darkness, I can tell you this, Jason, in pitch darkness, we went out you could only see from the moonlight, the, the, the glittering waves. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm reliving this as I tell you, you know, yeah. we see, going out there and you can't see a single thing until you see the dim lights of that boat way out. Finally, we got to the boat and climbed up the narrow gangway, but I felt, I felt reasonably safe because on the boat was a guy called Golden Ray Apollon was his professional wrestling name mm. who's a heavyweight wrestler and uh, if golden ray apollon popular trinidad guy is going onto the same boat then you know i'm, I'm okay <laughs> you know but this dangling uh, ladder that took you up the side of the boat it looked looked as though it's climbing up a six story high which was wasn't anything like that it probably was no more than like two floors uh, but it looked enormous. And I got on a Northern Star, which was a boat to sail clockwise around the world from Australia and uh, sailed sailed to Saburo. Uh, found myself on Saburo with a suit that I had made looking for a job.
0: That is a wonderful story of determination. Every turn, just pushing back on society and the the expectations of your youth and matriculation through college, and then to persist in most people not having the determination to save every dime for something that they want that badly, uh, and building so much skill in such a short amount of time, and then taking that leap of faith to go that far. I think very few entrepreneurs risk that much in pursuit of it, very few uh, really take that kind of-
1: I'd say here, Jason, no. is it's not so much a leap of faith, you know. I think I was naive. Hmm. I think I was just naive because the, I think about this a lot where I came from, who my parents were, um, the background I came from. I my limited education at that time. I wouldn't even call it education. You go to elementary school, you learn to read and write and, and, and so on. And I had never read a book. I had never, you know, you don't get to a book to read, even though, you know, taking a, an exam to go to college. You just, you just get basic, very, very basic education. So no. I was very, very naive. And that being naive, I think has helped me a lot. Because when I went to the UK, I didn't even recognize racism. Mm. I didn't recognize it was racism. I, you know, I, I make excuses for white people saying they didn't have the confidence mm-hmm. in me. But, I, but it was blatant racism. But I didn't recognize it. Mm. Because coming from Trinidad, I wasn't familiar with racism. So it, it, it was a foreign thing to me. So being naive, I, I would say, is is what helped me a lot in the the early days.
0: Awesome, that's awesome. You also had a profound skill. Uh, I I don't have that many skills myself, and I know that a lot of people who go to start, that's one of the biggest gaps, that there's a lot they're not able to do, but you seem to have had uh, enough talent to accomplish the basics of what you needed. How important was that skill foundation for this to be successful?
1: That was very important because the first job I had, um, it was a a company called Anthony Sinclair. Now, Anthony Sinclair uh, made uh, Sean Connery's suits for the Bond movie. Mm. And it was the first, he had an advertisement in his window. That's how it used to be done a long time ago, Mm -hmm. is that he put an ad out on your window. You didn't... Put out an ad in newspapers or anyplace else. It's just your window, and anyone who's interested passing by, they'll go in and ask for a job or ask for their job. And so I got that job at Anthony Sinclair, and he said, Okay, come in on Monday morning, you can start. I went in at, uh, you know, well on time. And then while I was there, another guy saw the ad that very morning, and he came in. So two of us are waiting to speak to Mr. Sinclair. So Mr. Sinclair took me upstairs, and he said, this is where you're going to work, while he interviewed the other guy. Then he came back upstairs about 20 minutes later, and, uh, or less than 20 minutes, because I haven't really started doing anything real. Mm-hmm. And uh, he fired me. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point in it, he fired me, and he employed this guy. This guy' name was Richard. He employed Mm -hmm. Richard and said to me, look, um, but I'll find you another job. You know, I hadn't started working properly on anything, but I think he was clearly embarrassed a little. Mm -hmm. He gave the job to to Richard, who was a white guy, uh, I must add. And um, Richard got that job. I then, he said, look, I will call around and get you another job. So he called around a couple of tailors on Savile Row and uh, Jim Welshman said he'll see me. I went over to Jill Welshman at number 33 Saddle Row, and he liked my suit. He said, um, If I had uh, facilities at home, he'll use me as an art worker. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd only just arrived in the country, no more than about five days, you know. So mm-hmm. I, di- I didn't. Uh, so he said, Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll call around because I have no space here. So he called Huntsman's. Directly opposite, which is number 10, number 11 side of the row. Yes. Sir. And when um, I went over to Huntsman, they liked what I was wearing. And they said, well, can you start now? So I got fired about 20 past nine. I got fired from one job. And at 1030, I had another one. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so Daniel did me a great favor by not teaching me to make jackets. Yes. Everyone who's turned me down has really been detouring me. They they were like a signpost to some other direction. Anthony Sinclair firing me did me a great favor. Not having sewing machine, Jim Welshman couldn't employ me as an art worker. Mm. I started at Huntsman. At Huntsman, I was working in the back room, but I had heard of all these great people that came to several to have their suits made and if you're in a back room not only can't you meet or even see these people you're not even allowed to walk through the front of the shop you had a tradesman entrance Mm. on the very first day i started the huntsman the second day rather um, now on a tuesday morning i went in through the front of the shop and this the boss stopped me and he said no you're not allowed to come through the front of the shop you got to come through the back of the shop Mm. So, I had to walk around the corner the following the following day to Wednesday now uh, to enter the, enter the shop at the back mm. and so it wasn't it wasn 't just myself but it, all all the tailoring staff had to enter at the back of the shop and um, I wanted to be a part of this action, and I felt you know if I can for me to get ahead, I needed to get retrained in cyber style, cyber Row cutting cyber road tailoring and so on. And so I worked at Huntsman five days a week from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then I had an evening job and I had a Saturday job. And so I had these three jobs going. And I was, again, saving to, to enter the London College of Fashion, the University of the Arts, mm. so that I could learn cutting, I could learn fitting, I could learn tailoring. So it was a a full tailoring course, and then there was business studies and three-dimensional design and Mm -hmm. art and all sorts of interesting things at the the London College of Fashion. And I did that course. And while I was doing that course, I became an unpaid instructor, teacher, Mm -hmm. because other students would come to me for guidance because it... They can see what I was able to do very easily. And after the first year, and I was a foreign student paying 900 pounds a year in 1972, 71, 72 at the London College of Fashion. That was an awful lot of money. I could buy a house, a three bedroom, four bedroom detached house for about three or 4,000 pounds. So here am I paying 900 pounds a year fee after the first year, the principal calls me in his office and he said he was happy with what I was doing. If I can complete a three-year degree in two years, he will skip me the second year and put me straight into the third year. Now, that was remarkable because Mm -hmm. they start with 15 students in the first year and 10 get selected to go into the second year. And after the second year, 8 get selected to go into the final year. And here I am, after the first year, being pushed straight into the final year to do a three-year degree in two years. I did it. Mm. I did it, <laughs> and uh, I then got a high recommendation because I, at, 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 at college, you know, I was known for this guy who could make the finest tailoring and made lots and lots of garments. So much so, I mean, I'm not tall, dark, and handsome, but I—I <laughs> I was even a model on, on stage for other students for their graduate show because this is the guy they wanted to use. Now, I never thought about those things at that time. Uh, But now, actually, I'll tell you this, I'm speaking to you now, Jason, and I'm actually thinking about these things. I used to model for these guys at the graduate shows. And so I became known, and I had a a really, really good, fantastic recommendation, a special diploma of distinction. Mm. Uh, And the suits that I made at college and going out to Saburo looking for a job. Now, I didn't want to be in the back room anymore. I wanted to be at the front. I wanted to cut, I wanted to fit, I wanted to engage with customers. I wanted to design for them. I wanted to be at the front. And every interview I had, they turned me down. Hmm. Eight graduates coming into Savaro, Saburo and surrounding areas, there are about 25, or 26 tailoring houses on Cyber Row. 22, actually, on Cyber Row. Mm-hmm. And in and around Cyber Row, there were lots and lots and lots of tailors. I think there were just about 45 tailors, by I counted once. Mm-hmm. No one would give me a job at the front of the shop. There was one guy, his name is John Deech. John Deech said, our customers wouldn't take kindly to a foreigner. But if you wanted a, a job in the back room, then we've got one for you. Mm-hmm. But that didn't appeal to me. And so every time I'd go back to college and the principal, I'd tell him, well, I didn't get a job. I didn't get a job, I didn't get a job. And then Maurice Sedwick, he had called the college and asked if if they had any graduates. And I got an interview, I remember clearly, written on on a piece of paper, which I still have, this is 1974. I still have that piece of paper with a telephone number. Name, Maurice Sedwell, telephone number seven three four zero eight two four. I got an interview. I got a month's trial. And I got a very, very long story short. I own a company today. So, <laughs> so you know, uh, that's one I kind of oversee
0: <laughs> oh, It's so inspiring. A, a, a young boy from the, the foothills of Trinidad a lifetime away from several row coming in and not being allowed to come in the front door, working in the back for years to now own the company is just an amazing story. And there's a lot of things that people aspire to in that path. There's so much more I want to pick your brain about your time there under Maury Setwell on the path to the, to the top. I, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, and, and hopefully we can talk about those things in a lot more detail in future conversations. The one thing I want to ask about, I listened to you talk about the work you did and, and the outcome and the, the, the impression it made on others. I've seen you work. I've watched you cut, I've watched you instruct, and you have a certain grace about the way you go about it. Your mannerisms have a certain flow. And I know that's from a lot of time as well, but there's, is there a mindset, about the way you approach your work as an artist, as a craftsman, that would be applicable to everyone that's trying to build something for the world? Is there something about your mindset and the way you approach your work that comes out in the quality you're able to produce?
1: The mindset, I would tell you, Jason, is very, very simple. I am committed to excellence. I am constructively critical of my own work, constantly. I never stop learning. I always look at the way I do things, how I share the knowledge, how I practice what I do, and I'm always calm. And I think being calm, I am in control. And the opportunities that I've had to be able to share my knowledge has actually been a, a fantastic learning opportunity for me. Because the more I teach, the more I learn in that I have so many different, so many different people that I teach Mm. or persons that I teach. They have different uh, degrees of assimilating information. So I'd have, say I'm teaching 15 students at the moment and all 15 of them have different capacities to learn. Mm. And so I would approach them as individuals rather than teaching them as a class and really trying to teach them the high standards attainable. And I use the word standards because the Andrew Ramroop tailoring standards is what is important. Once you set your standards high and you set yourself achievable goals and you achieve that goal and then you set yourself another high achievable goal, you achieve that, and then you set yourself at yet another high achievable goal. So you constantly feel as though you've got a sense of achievement, as opposed to that you're trying to get to a certain level, and, you, and you're not there yet. I still could sometimes think I'm not there yet, mm. but you are still struggling to get there. So I set myself achievable goals, and I'm very calm with my approach. When it comes to styling and designing and working uh, for customers, for instance, It is that I want to project a sartorial image for my customer so that he can stand out in an interesting way Mm. that he's not fashionable, but he's more stylish because I believe style outlasts fashion Mm. and fashion. I sometimes say discredits what you have so you can go out and buy something new. Fashion is a moving target. Fashion is seasonal, but style and elegance outlasts fashion. Mm. So, when I approach what I do, I approach in in, in the calmness of of my growing up in the hills, the influence of Trinidad carnival, the color, the fauna, you know, the excitement, you know, being in the environment that I am in now, it is the environment that I grew up in. And I'm, you know, I've got to say, I've never really integrated in British society. This is my 50th year in the UK. And uh, I went there in July, 1970 and now, I, in my 50th year i 've never really integrated into british life and british society i 've managed to excel in my field, but i 'm a homeboy i 'm from back wow. home mm-hmm. you know and I would not be happy anywhere in the world although i could i 'm fortunate enough to be able to afford a home anywhere in the world and anywhere in Trinidad for that matter. but my home is in the village where my umbilical cord is buried mm-hmm. Right, that's exactly where my home is. Where is, I, where is the teeth corn, in the, in, right in the cornfield, Here in, in Tudokuna is where my house is. And I would not be happier anywhere in the world than where I am. So it's coming right back to my roots.
0: Mm. That is just wonderful. And as a last point, you, after having excelled in your field, didn't rest on your laurels to be a fantastic artist and craftsman for yourself you took on a role of leadership among this society that you, again, even as an outsider, you saw gaps and needs And uh, from your academy and your leadership in the uh, Seville Royal Academy of uh, Taylors. You, you've been a leader this whole time. Everything from the Campaign for Wool, you've been behind a lot of things. How has that leadership led you back to where you are today? And can you tell us as we finish up uh, what you're doing now in Trinidad, because I think that's a wonderful thing as well.
1: Well, you know how that actually came about, starting the Cyber Royal Academy in 2007? I was, for the previous seven years, I was president of the Master Taylor's Association. And I became president because I was the only guy who came with ideas as to how we should grow, how we should develop, whether we should change our constitution, whether we should have a logo, You know, I, I would, whether we should have a website, you know, stuff. I would be pushing these guys all the time. And annually at our luncheon, I would give a speech about training, about the future and so on. And I tried and tried to get them to take training in a formal capacity, 39 companies to uh, adopt training of the future tailors, and they wouldn't accept my proposal. They'd turn it down. And I, as president, commission a feasibility study that we paid for an awful lot of money. We paid at that time, 10,000 pounds for that feasibility study. Mm. And that feasibility study proved what I was saying. We need training for the future. The tailors were getting older and older and older, and there were no new blood coming into the industry. And if we don't train people in a formal capacity, uh, what's going to happen is that the trade is going to die. If we don't trade, if we don't give, I wanted the constitution changed to guarantee work placements for students coming out of London College of Fashion. Mm. They wouldn't accept that. So every good points I raised, they would turn it down. The committee would turn it down. And so I said, you know what? In 2006, I said I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna resign as president and I resigned in 2006. In 2007, I registered the Saddle row Academy, and I opened the doors to six students in January 8, 2008. Mm-hmm. And I trained, since then I've trained, uh, my last count, I haven't counted recently, uh, my last count, 191 tailors. And um, there was such a hunger such a hunger. It is that it wasn't that young people don't want to come into the trade and the excuses that were given that, like, you know, when you train them, they leave. And I, I, one of my points is, if you need to train them and leave, it's better that you train them and they leave and you don't train them enough and you them, they stay with you. And so, all of the arguments I've raised, they turned out. And when I started training students at the uh, trainings at the Salvador Academy, there was such a demand that we have six applications at that time to every one place that we had. We had just six places. Mm-hmm. It's now grown to 12, but we had just six places at that time. And now we, we have, for the 12 places we have, we have in the region, I think the last time was about 119 applications mm-hmm. for the 12 places. So there's a huge demand. And this is 11 years old, you know. So it is that you know, even the feasibility study showed that you know we needed this. They would turn it, they turn it down. And so how I happened to be in Trinidad is that um, uh, quite a few years ago, it may have been around about two thousand and five, six, whenever it was, I don't recall exactly. I had a Trinidad politician that came. Uh, to London. He had heard of Saburo. He came to Saburo. And I've had lots and lots of visits of ministers, government ministers here and so on. Mm. And that gentleman um, was a government minister. I think he was in... in, i I do not quite sure what portfolio he held. But anyway, he came by. And he was missing a button on his blazer that he wore. And I said, well, if you can let me have the blazer, you know, I'll sew the button on. So he was wearing it to meeting. He sent the blazer. I didn't have a button to match, but I changed all the buttons on the blazer and I sent it back to him. I didn't see it yet. And so a couple of years, some years had ensued. And I had a, a, one of my customers from the Bahrain came in to see me and then he said, I know your prime minister. No, no, I know, no, no, I don't know. He said, I know this person in Trinidad. And I said, oh yeah. And he called up um, this gentleman who had then become the opposition leader.
0: Mm.
1: and he, That gentleman said that when I come to Trinidad, um, I should give him a call. And so this um, customer from Bahrain said to me, if he says to give him a call, he didn't say that idly. He's giving you his mobile number. Give him a call whenever you go there. And so in 2012, I gave him a call when I came to Trinidad. I met with him, We became acquainted He's now become leader of the opposition. And in 2013, he said to me, the election was in 2015. He said, if we win the election in 2015, would you come to Trinidad and teach those skills that you, that you accumulate in the world? And so the, you know, he's now prime minister.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: he's invited me to come to Trinidad to teach the skills. And that's why I'm here.
0: That is wonderful. That is wonderful. It, it's the product of the combination of skill and leadership that is, has that is now led to uh, this new chapter in your life and has brought you home. Uh, it's a couple of interesting points. I've been to the school. I've, I've seen your students, took pictures and shared them with my children. They're 16 and 11, and uh, they were inspired. You know, My son loves origami, and so yeah. saw that. Yeah. And he likes doing things with his hands, and so he said that's something he could potentially want to do, having seen it. And uh, from the pictures I took, the one thing that, that struck me was your students, as you talked about, have that sense of calm about them, that peace. If you see, you know, artists studying at Juilliard or, you know, any of the dancers or musicians, they're stressed and they're trying to master these skills, but everybody was peacefully uh, loving their, their clothing as they were tailoring it. And I just uh, felt good in that space. You created a safe space that people can learn in. And again, to take the, the bold step of leading them and leading the industry to this, it's, it's just reaping rewards for the whole world. I really appreciate it's
1: interesting, it. You know, it. It's interesting that now I get messages from other tailors who've turned down this idea, asking to employ graduates from the Savile Academy. And in fact, we've got um, our ex trainees who are running. I mean, there's one guy, very talented, David, David Torb, who runs Bespoke at Geese and Hawks, become very well known. I trained him for, for two years, then he went off two years, he came back and trained for another two years, and now he's running, he's running that company.
0: Mm, that's wonderful. That's amazing. It's the, the fruits of your legacy are just growing, and I really appreciate it. I try not to gush, but it's very difficult i have admired you for a very long time. Uh, sir, I want to be respectful of your time. You've promised me this hour, and we've reached the end of that hour. And uh, I hope that we'll be able to have this conversation again in the future. I've truly okay. enjoyed it, and I hope you've, you've gotten some value from it as well. On behalf of all of the veteran entrepreneurs that are looking to start their businesses or struggling with, with growing their businesses today, I just wanna thank you for the time and for sharing your story. And uh, for for those veteran entrepreneurs out there again, uh, most of them in in my Atlanta chapter, uh, entrepreneurs of color. Uh, Would you like to leave them with a couple of thoughts for their path forward?
1: You know, there are, it's often said, find something that you enjoy, that you love, uh, and you'll never have a work a day. You never have to work a day in your life. But there is another take to that. It is that... um, if there are any things that you have an interest in and you decide to engage in learning that, you may find that you would learn to love something that you did not love before. So it's to engage in things that are of interest to you and then you will find your pathway. And it is motivating, encouraging, inspiring others, Mm. no matter what background they're from, that they can achieve once they aspire to doing things, you know, honesty and fair play. I think once they aspire to achieve, they can do. I mean, we, we all can.
0: That's, that's a wonderful message. I I would love to help you as you, uh, gather these thoughts and chronicle your memories of your path in these wonderful 60 plus years. Then, uh, if we can document that in podcasts and, and share it with the world, I think we'll inspire a lot of people uh, at a distance for many years.
1: Sure, sure, sure.
0: Thank you so much, sir. I will definitely reach out to you uh, as you get close to the, the visit in April, and uh, we'll schedule another hour to hear more about your, your time, and uh, I'll update you on how things are progressing. And I tell you, don't be surprised one of these days I walk into your, uh, your, your shop in Trinidad to get fitted.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in this week. We appreciate you dialing in and listening to our podcast on a regular basis. Tell your friends about us. Tune in next time to find some more fantastic information to help you succeed in the world of sales. I'm Jason Smith, and we'll see you next time here at Sales Synergistics. Goodbye, world.